Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And I'm delighted to welcome stand-up comedian, satirist and GB News presenter, Andrew Doyle. Hello. Coming up on the show, Boris Johnson's embattled leadership, the BBC licence fee, the terror in Texas and a year of Joe Biden. So Boris Johnson's premiership is hanging in the balance. It's been a torrid week for the Prime Minister. He's had MPs defecting to Labour. Dozens of MPs have reportedly handed in their letters of no confidence. And even some of his erstwhile allies like David Davis have called on him to resign. Tom, can you just tell us how we got here? Well, it's a, it's a long story now, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the kind of immediate cause of all of this was that never-ending Partygate scandal and really just the excuses that mm. were coming out from Number 10 trying to make this story go to bed, which were just becoming more and more ridiculous. I mean, I thought the PMQs this week, a, a few people very effectively just laid out how the narrative from Number 10's perspective has just become so untenable. You know, it started off as there were no parties, we didn't do anything wrong. There were parties, but we didn't do anything wrong. I didn't know it was a party. I mean, all of this just started to get more and more and more um, ridiculous. But I think, I suppose the thing that undergirds all of it is just that Boris Johnson just feels kind of spent Mm. um, and therefore it invites all of these different sort of challenges. Now, at the moment, I think the one thing that's kind of given him a bit of stay of execution, you know, this, what it was being talked up things might change by the time people see this podcast, but it was being talked up as the week, you know, a vote of no confidence could have been triggered and all the rest of it. It's just that a lot of his allies are quite spread across the party. They're not particularly well organised. Some of them are these kind of new red wall MPs who frankly just don't know the way around how to do things necessarily at this point. There was that big defection um, mm. from the Tory benches to Labour, Christian Wakefield, I think his name is, such as the fact that he was a relatively minor figure, which only really served to kind of galvanise Tory support behind him PMQ so he's 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 kind of we're just in limbo at the moment but the reason it's not necessarily for a positive reason if you Mm. see what I mean it's less that Boris Johnson hasn't come out fighting although he did to a degree at PMQs and more that just the opposition to him particularly in his own party is just a little bit disorganized and waiting for next week it feels like at this point. Andrew what have you made of this week? Uh, well, I think Boris Johnson is completely tone deaf. I think um, mm. the idea that these parties that were going on and all the revelations and all the lies that have come about afterwards uh, aren't going to really sort of dig the knife into a lot of people is completely, it's incredible that they don't see what this is really about. And, what, yeah. and it's about the hypocrisy, isn't it? People are very sort of uh, distressed about that. But also Boris Johnson, I don't think he is lying because why would you say, why would you claim, he claims that he didn't realise he was breaking the rules mm. even though he'd set the rules, right? If that's a calculated lie, it makes him look like an idiot, right? And why would he <laughs> want that as his legacy to be that stupid? So, you know, I, d- I don't know what's going on. Maybe he is just that stupid. I don't know. I mean, that. It, yeah. so it's just, he doesn't know what he's doing. When he had David Davis in um, Parliament the other day, Uh, throwing that quotation at him, uh, uh, you know, the Neville Chamberlain uh, thing, which Boris then claimed he didn't know that quotation, even though he wrote a book on Churchill. So uh, (laughs) it just seems like he's flustered and flummoxed and doesn't know what he's doing. Surely, although I hear today that apparently some of the letters have been withdrawn, so people had sent some letters in Mm. and then they'd withdrawn them. Um, So it looks like he's going to be, he's not going to go without a fight. Yeah. And I know every political career ends in tragedy but surely at some point you just got to reconcile and say okay i'll accept my time is over why, why wouldn't you do that just for the sake of your own ego i don't understand mm. why you'd want to cling on when everyone wants you to go sure, yeah surely you know at least as far as this particular scandal the party gate scandal yeah the gate the, the, the jig is up no one surely. no one believes anything he's saying now no that's right that's my that's that's the thing so and people on his own party as well and what i thought it was pretty devastating what david davis did 
to him mm. because actually he was doing all right up until that point and then that completely completely threw him so mm. when you know I, I just yeah his time is absolutely over tom that seems to be what's different about you know this particular wobble for boris you know it's not the usual suspects it's not the the one nation wets who are coming yeah. out against him there are brexiteers david davis you know real ally of his in in the past it, that's changed, hasn't it? Well, to, to a certain extent, but I think sometimes the media can be at risk of slightly overplaying that. I mean, like him and David Davis haven't gone along for, for a very long time, mm. you know, particularly during the Theresa May years, they were really sort of beefing with one another. Um, and you often see, oh, you know, when someone like Caroline Noakes or um, the Scottish leader, Douglas Ross comes out and, you know, calls for his head, everyone's like, isn't this so significant? It's not yeah. this, but a lot. The, this is the thing about Boris Johnson is he has very few allies in the Conservative Party. He's never had a base of support necessarily. He argues had that a bit with the 2019 intakes. They felt like they owed their seats to him. But the Tory party's relationship with Boris Johnson is very transactional. Mm. Um, they put up from their perspective with a hell of a lot policies that they didn't particularly like, not just lockdown, but, you know, um, the um, funding for uh, the health service and social care, all of these things which they wouldn't go along with because he was fundamentally a winner. And so you just see all this support just sort of start to, to drain away. I think the issue is at the moment is, is just that dawning realisation that whilst Boris Johnson is really spent, and there's also, this is not just about this past week and this party scandal, you know, any kind of positive sort of populist energy mm. he used to have has completely evaporated yeah. now. Um, and there's no kind of, it, and that's one of the things about the party scandals, which I think makes it more important, is it just really created that sense of how out of, how fundamentally out of touch yeah. they were. Um, but at the same time, what's the alternative? Um, the Tory party can't work out who they would even replace him with necessarily. Um, and I know that Liz Truss and to a lesser extent, Rishi Sunak excites the Tory base to a certain extent. It doesn't, won't go down well in my large parts of the country, <laughs> I dare say, even if they know who Liz Truss is. Um, but also the opposition, because you can't help but feel that there's certain people who are kind of rubbing their hands with glee mm. at the prospect of, of Boris Johnson going. So we're kind of just caught between a rock and a hard place but between this kind of phony populist and these anti-populists. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, that, I don't think that necessarily means people should suddenly rally behind Boris Johnson because just because the other side annoy us more. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. he has just exhausted whatever positive content there was in this project. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know when his time is up, when, when all these people are making overtures about their leadership bids, you get it. <laughs> I didn't even go sort of chip in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeremy Hunt saying, well, he had, <laughs> Jeremy Hunt had said he hasn't completely ruled out uh, leadership <laughs> ambitions. And, uh, you know, Liz Truss going to work in a tank. I think she's doing that a lot now. <laughs> so like all that kind of stuff is clearly about wanting to be leader. But uh, they're going to yeah. have to get some, I mean, look, Tory party's always been out of touch. I remember um, when, uh, was it David Cameron made that statement that uh, he said, my people think my wife is very blue-blooded, but she's actually very unconventional. She, she went to a day school <laughs> uh, and that's something so it's always been in the Tory party oh, that they're not really into, absolutely and I don't imagine they'll be able to replace Boris with anyone who's more in touch unless they uh, I don't I don't know unless they went Sajid Javid unless they went sort of working class yeah that might be the way to do but it but even then he's a kind of Ayn Rand obsessive you know what I mean yeah, this yeah. is the sort of thing where <laughs> they're, they're, slightly and, odd. but this just reminds us how fragile that huge sort of Tory revival if you like under mm. Boris Johnson and uh, this realignment was starting under May mm. as well during the whole Brexit period was how much it was about um, sort of factors external to the Tory party, yeah. if you like, you know, it, this sort of Brexity mood and fury at the referendum result not being implemented and all the rest of it, a general sense that the political class were really out of touch mm. with ordinary people, that there needed to be that sort of realignment. Um, it was so confined 
to a few individuals with some good advisors around them. It wasn't something which shot through all of the Tory party, as you say, they're as out of touch as they've ever been. And essentially, as soon as the kind of advice around Boris Johnson changed and, and the mood changed and he kind of reverted back to course, which is to be all over the place like a shopping trolley, it just sort of evaporated. And that's, yeah. a, that's a shame to a certain extent, but just goes to show that what an uncomfortable vessel the old party of the establishment was for this new <laughs> mood that it attached itself and, to for and a if brief the poll- time. If the polling is to be believed, then it is in these red wall seats where the you know the Tories are really going to suffer. Labour have got an eleven point lead yeah. over mm. them in those in those seats. Um you know, 52% of voters of, of, of 2019 Tory voters there say they'll never vote Conservative again. They could lose the vast majority of them. I mean, yeah, that those they, those are the seats that made Boris. But, but isn't, it, isn't it interesting? It. Because that, basically, isn't it because we've all stopped thinking about Brexit? Mm. That, I mean, that was the reason why he won those seats. That was that was the you know the wave of support was on the back of get Brexit done. It's been done, and now we've got a pandemic, and now it's something else. And yeah. so, and he can't. That's it's gone now. It's not yeah. really even in people's minds anymore. So of course he can't hold on to it. And you know, I know for all his talk of leveling up, which uh, I think there was a YouGov thing recently, which showed that most people don't know what leveling up means mm. anyway. But <laughs> I don't think the government knows what no, it means. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But this idea of prioritizing those areas who, who at the time, remember when he came to power and he, he said, you know, I understand you've lent me your vote, mm. uh, but he doesn't seem to have repaid uh, that debt mm. particularly. And he, you know, so even some like Starmer, this, this sort of hampstered type isn't going, <laughs> c- could actually stand more of a chance yeah. even, even in those areas. Yeah. And it, and it does feel like since Brexit as well, I mean, obviously you had the pandemic, which is going to, you know, knock the stuffing out of any kind of government naturally, but you just, it necessarily just killed off any yeah. sort of mm. momentum. I mean, it's worth remembering when this government came in, they were talking about House of Lords reform, potentially we never believed they'd do it, but it was nice that they were talking about it. Constant discussion about how we need to be where the voters are. But ever since then, not only did he, lock the public down, which wasn't necessarily a particularly good move for, you know, cultivating that sense of social solidarity. But he's latched himself onto so many of the kind of elite projects of the day. He's gone in for net zero. He's got this um, strange, slightly confused relationship with the whole trans politics issue, which he nevertheless can't make up his mind on. But it's quite clear that he's sort of in hock to a certain extent to that kind of perspective, doesn't want to upset people by having some of those difficult arguments about what all of that means. Talk about Carrie there. Of course. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 by, but by extension, also kind of that general sense where, because he is by, uh, you know, but he is a kind of metropolitan liberal in yeah, some yeah. respects, in the worst sense of that, insofar as being quite illiberal and wanting mm. to just attach yourself to whatever kind of faddy, nice sounding uh, politics there are about. So ever since then, there, it's just, it's gone completely in the other direction, it feels like. So anything that could have renewed yeah. that mm. sense of, you know, sort of anti-establishment momentum, even whilst being the Prime Minister and the government, he just seems to have missed every single opportunity, it mm. feels like. Before we move on, let's talk about something that's, that feels like some unequivocally good news. Um, the end of the so-called Plan B measures, that's working from home, mandatory face masks and uh, vaccine passports are set to expire. Mm. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, of course. I mean, it, it it got to the point where it it did feel it, like it was redundant. I, mean, I, was, I was reading yeah. all sorts of conflicting um, evidence or whatever you want to call it, from scientific uh, sources. And, you know, it's quite clear that with an airborne virus, you don't need to mask children in a school It's mm. because it's going to get around anyway. And so in a sense, in a weird sense, Omicron is sort of our saviour here because everyone's going to get it and uh, it's going to provide us with immunity and, and all the rest of it. So it's great news. It's really good. Mm. Tom? No, no, I think it's it's a really positive step. It's it's unfortunate that it was taken purely for political reasons. <laughs> Do you think that's <laughs> what it was? Oh, hundred percent. Certainly, with the speed with which that was yeah, that was taken right. um, on and, the day, because uh, the, there was <laughs> even remember at the beginning of this week, I think uh, the briefing was that Plan B is going to go, but we're going to keep face masks. Yeah. Was the desire to 
the steady as we go yeah. kind of approach. And Boris Johnson is trying to take a lot of credit for saying, I made, you know, I make, I might not make every call right, but I make the big calls right. And, you know, Christmas and not locking down being one of them. But from what the reporting was, it wasn't that he was basically paid up supporter of the sort of sage position until yeah. his cabinet talked him round. So there is, there's, I think the difficulty is, whilst it's really positive that we are opening up, um, because Boris is incapable of making a virtue out of it, of yeah. saying it's good that we're opening up. He's kind of started to talk like that a little bit now, but I think the difficulty is you really need to um, make sure that this isn't just opening up for now. So making yeah, a right. virtue of it, I think is quite important. But wasn't that, you know, wasn't it inevitable in as far as the argument's been lost? Everyone can now see that the sage predictions were massively yeah. off. There's no getting around yeah. that. You know, when it was discovered in, you know, in that chat with uh, with Fraser Nelson on Twitter, yeah. Yeah. Where, where it was discovered that they were only modelling the worst case scenario <laughs> because the government only asked them for the worst case yeah. scenario. So, like, I don't think once once that, those sort of details are out in the public domain, I don't think you can win that argument anymore. No. So you, you sort of have to open it up. Although I know that, you know, like, for instance, Sadiq Khan is just pretending otherwise <laughs> and he's going to insist on masks on the yeah. tube and on travel and things like that. And, and he's even claiming he's going to fine people for it, which I don't think is legal, That's as far as I'm aware. I don't think you'll find someone for what they wear on a... A tube. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, let's talk a bit about something else that happened at the weekend. Um, one of the other ways that Boris has been trying to save his leadership is by this so-called policy of Operation Red Meat, and uh, <laughs> the, which is who came up with that? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's been a it's terrible a, week for like cringy coinages. Well. Exactly. So Operation Red Meat, Operation Big Dog, <laughs> Big Dog's yeah, yeah. The, uh, Dog. What was it? The pork pie put. Pork pie put. Just you yeah. get a sense of how this this government and the media class in particular are just so cringe, really. Put, put all the journalists on lockdown. Talk. That's what I want to do. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> furlough them for a period. One of the, one of the key one, key things we should talk about is um, Nadine Doris, the culture secretary, said that she's going to freeze the BBC license fee for two years and hinted that she might scrap it entirely. Now it seems as if every couple of years there's a row between the Tory government and the BBC. Yeah, and the reaction, you know, whenever they say they're going to make some change to the way the BBC operates, people act as if you know civilization itself is oh, about to have, end. Yeah, people have gone mad, haven't they? Yeah. They're so upset about this. And, the, you know, well, I look, I say this, I gauge this through Twitter, um, which is probably not the best way, but... It's where these people hang out. Yeah, yeah it's it's it where all the lovies are. Yeah. And, it, and it is some sort of major co- uh, figures in the commentary are putting out stuff about all the great things that BBC do. And this is very much a politically partisan debate now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, that was it, uh, the list that came out of all the great comedies the BBC has produced, none of which appeared in the last 20 years. <laughs> so these kind of things actually are self-defeating when mm. you make these points, because of course, you know, there's quite obviously a problem with the BBC, but also I don't, you know, short poll after poll over many years now has shown that the, the majority of the public recognise that the licence is uh, is outdated. It's not yeah. it's not there to stay. It doesn't really make sense in the modern era, mm. um, and a lot of people don't want to be paying for a service that they don't use, and that's you know perfectly reasonable. And people are proposing ideas of. Um, a subscription service. We were talking this, about this on GB News the other day because I read an article in The Guardian which was talking about this this idea of a subscription model as being something that is promulgated by the hard right. <laughs> this is what the hard right are interested. How can you politicise <laughs> things to that extent yeah. where, where you think that this is a... It's just people who don't want to pay for a, sh- a channel they don't watch. They're not calling for a white ethno state. It's so, it's so weird that The Guardian and people like that interpret it in this polarizing way. I don't Does that make Netflix a fascist platform? Apparently, it's probably. Well, yeah. they do have Dave Chappelle. So That's all, true. All, oh, yeah. all the dots connect now. Yeah. But no, it is, but it's interesting because the argument has now become it's like BBC is one of those institutions which is between us and barbarism almost. Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. just yeah. become part of this very crude sort of culture. What I think the point you make about um, the self defeating argument is, is so true. I mean, Adil Ray 
it's now on, on GMB, but obviously done a lot of work with BBC over the years. Um, when he put out that um, promotional video that the BBC put out a few decades ago. John Cleese The one. John Cleese one. So it's John Cleese is this kind of pub bore almost, kind of arguing the toss as to why the licence yeah. fees are a load of bollocks. And then these various <laughs> BBC luminaries appear and say, well, they do do great documentaries and it's David Attenborough, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Dimbleby pops up and talks about the politics coverage. And all that served as, as a reminder First of all, the BBC has always been a bit hectoring on the question of licence fees, <laughs> yeah. but also that it used to be such a much more heavyweight yeah, institution yeah, yeah, than, it, than it is today. And it's just very difficult to, to make the same kind of argument for it. Because I think the, the thing is that the, if the BBC is to exist, then it, it's not necessarily just go and let it compete. You've got to be able to make an argument as to why this is so important that it needs to almost exist, not subject to the pressures of the market and yeah. all the rest of it, which is fair. But then you think, what is the case that they're trying to make for it? And especially given the fact that we've got a public service broadcaster, which by any estimation uh, seems to really dislike the public. And yeah. I think this discussion has really showed that up to a certain extent. How do you do that? Yeah. You know, this that, is difficult. Gareth Roberts, didn't he write a piece mm. for Spike this week about yeah. this and this idea that the the hectoring nature of the BBC and the way in which they seem to hate working class people, let's put it like that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, or there's, you know, the... the this whole polarisation of left and right is misleading. It's nothing to do with that. It's mm. to do with this identitarian movement, whatever we want to call it, critical social justice, which has infected the BBC to such an extent that you can't watch a programme without feeling like you're being lectured yeah. on your morality. And I know the original Rethian principles had to educate as mm -hmm. one of the principles, uh, what was it, inform, educate, entertain. Mm -hmm. um, but they've really pushed the educate yeah. to extreme. Re-educate. Re-educate. Yeah. Re yeah. Exactly. Educate exactly. yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this new slogan. And it's, um, it's not their business yeah. uh, to tell you what to think about it or to assume that your audience base is all homophobe mm. and racist. You know, this is just bizarre. Absolutely. Now, something has happened slightly tangentially to the BBC that we should talk about a, a little bit about. The, the statue a statue by the sculptor Eric Gill has mm. been vandalised. And you, Andrew, predicted that this would happen. I am a prophet. You are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. The wake of prophet the, the in the wake of the original statue wars in that Black Lives Matter summer in 2020. That's right. I mean, it wasn't difficult to predict. <laughs> <It's a prophet. laughs> I'd love to take the credit, but yeah. yeah. Well, the so the Eric Gill statue is a statue of Ariel and Prosper outside of the BBC Broadcasting House. Uh, mm. Those are obviously characters from The Tempest, from Shakespeare's play. Um, and um, it was sculpted by Eric Gill, who we found out after his death. You know, someone wrote a biography in the 80s and this biographer had access to his diaries and in his mm. diaries he admitted to molesting his daughters and the family dog. Uh, so not a nice man, not yeah. a pleasant man. No one was claiming that he was. Mm. Um, and so someone has climbed up this ladder with a hammer mm. uh, to attack and was up there for hours and the police were standing there just sort of watching, not really doing anything about this. And of course, um, this is, came a week after the Colston Four. Uh, verdict. And yeah. you do, you know, you do think, are you joining the dots there? Because, you know, is there a sense in which the state is now legitimizing the attack or vandalism of monuments that you just don't happen to like? Yeah. It's always going to be a subjective judgment. I've been having all these arguments with people online about this because again, inevitably it comes back to, yeah, but he was a paedophile, he was a sexual monster, mm. but I'm not denying any of that or saying that his crimes aren't abhorrent. What I'm saying is that statue didn't molest anyone. Yeah. The statue is a work of art and has absolutely nothing to do with him. I believe that. I really can mm. separate the art from the artist. I think if we don't do that, we're going to be decimating our cultural landscape. The Western canon would have to go. Mm. I think about uh, um, in Florence, if you go to the Piazza Ceneria, the main square in Florence, there's a beautiful statue of Perseus uh, by Cellini. Now, I've read Cellini's autobiography. He's not a nice man, killed people, um, had sex with minors, mm. um, you know, really kind of extreme. Mm. In fact, he only wrote the biography because it was under house arrest for, for sodomy with uh, minors. So, terrible man. But if that statue were to go, it would be an absolute travesty, mm. right? So we have to accept that artists sometimes are 
cunts, right? That's something we just have to accept. <laughs> Sometimes they're not nice people mm, and yeah. you just have to deal with that, you know? Yeah. And, and, and by all, if he were alive today, I'd like to see Gil on trial yeah. and prosecuted and mm. imprisoned, right? Without a doubt. Um, but I, I, I and, and maybe this is contentious, but I just don't see how the, uh, destroying that artwork mm. will in any way uh, uh, make any kind of atonement for the crimes that he committed. Absolutely. Let's um, talk a bit about um, some of the events in the US. A real tragedy at the weekend in in Texas, in Colleyville, Texas. Malik Faisal Akram held four people hostage at the synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. I mean, he travelled from the UK. He's from mm. Blackburn simply to terrorise a group of Jews. I mean, Tom, what have we learned from this act of terror and from the response to it? I think it's really quite chilling because at this point, Brenda made this point in Spike this week. It's like we're exporting Islamist terror, like mm. anti-Semitic Islamist terror. Uh, he went specifically to the US to do this in the phone call between him and his his brother and the kind of um, during the standoff. I mean, he talks quite explicitly about how he kind of almost, first of all, that he wants to be martyred, et cetera, et cetera, but also that he wants to kind of inspire people that they can go and have a pop at America mm. as well. Um, and it's just, again, I think it's so striking that even as these sort of stories pile up, even ones as um, outlandish and crazy as this particular one is, that we still seem incapable of kind of properly processing it, I guess. If you think about last year in particular, so you've got this particularly strange case, but we've also had, obviously, the murder of David Amos by yeah. a suspected Islamist terrorist. We'll see what comes out during the trial, given that he survived that. You had the Liverpool bombing, which is a confusing one, mm. um, but it does seem that in that situation, the gentleman, this claim that he was a Christian convert has more or less fallen apart. Seems like quite a troubled individual, but nevertheless, there's, there's questions to be raised there. And you just think that if, you know, why supremacist, racist, Nazi types had had a run like this, we'd be having a very different conversation. I think yeah. that's, that's fair to say. And also just the, the sense in which you have this particularly toxic mix of Islamism and anti-Semitism is, is so striking and so uh, horrifying. So he you know, takes these Jewish hostages because he's convinced that this will be the leverage he needs to get the American authorities to release Afia Siddiqui, who's this mm. um, known as um, Lady Al-Qaeda, is serving like an 86-year prison sentence. At one point, he gets the rabbi to telephone this other rabbi in New York because he thinks that, again, they'll kind of be able to sort this out for him. Um, and this is something that also desperately needs to be addressed because aside from the kind of these attacks and these hostage situations which have been taking place, you know, we did have quite recently, last year, uh, those guys who also, I think Rakib Hassan's pointed this out, were from Blackburn driving around Northwest London, yeah. you know, shouting out anti-Semitic, the most vile anti-Semitic abuse and flying the Palestinian flag and all the rest of it. Yet again, we're not necessarily able to have that kind of discussion mm. about where this hatred is coming from, where this nihilism is coming from, why there's a very small but significant proportion of people in our own society who mm. turn towards these very dark ideologies. Um, but again, it's just something which is, you know, fourth or fifth on the news next to pork pie putches and all the rest of it. It's, just, it's a yeah. strange case, I think. Andrew, it seems as if there's these almost two, not quite, not quite taboos, but subjects that we don't really want to touch, both Islamism and anti-Semitism. And when the two combine, it's even, you know, it's, less willingness to talk about and it. And it's strange to me because I've heard Muslim commentators talk about that there is a anti-Semitism problem within the Muslim community. And that isn't to say that Muslims are anti-Semitic. Mm. Uh, or that they don't want to, or that the majority of them don't want to drive it out. But there is a, there is clearly a problem there, um, and it needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. This guy may have had. I mean, I know the family are saying he's ha had mental health issues, mm. and there's all of that going on. But look, 
uh, even if he's a deranged person who's completely out of his mind, he's drawing on tropes. Mm. Yeah. You know, he, like you say, Tom, like he, he thought that th there's a Jewish network of power that could release this lady Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. figure that suggests straight away that he's buying into an anti-Semitic trope that Jews run the world, basically. Yeah. So there's that there. Uh, and exactly as you said, the people driving around shouting anti-Semitic slurs. So absolutely, it does uh, need to be addressed openly uh, without, I mean, of course, I know why people aren't doing it because the accusation of Islamophobia yeah. comes about if you suggest there's any anything inherent within that. Uh, which is why maybe, you know, it, it it's more powerful when it comes from within the Muslim community, when Muslim commentators make this point that we just need to address this. Similarly with homophobia within yeah. within that community, which is also, which you know, it, it's not, you know, which is of course awful, particularly for gay Muslims, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, I understand the nervousness. I yeah. understand because the accusation is, is damning. Mm. Um, but we just have to sort of ignore people who make that accusation, I think. Mm. Definitely. I, I think just, just quickly though, it's, it just really strikes how, inhuman and unpleasant the sort of identitarian politics that calculation that always happens because essentially whenever a tragedy happens now there is almost an instantaneous calculation as to how serious this is going to be taken <laughs> how much of a national conversation this is going to be and it's basically based on um what did the perpetrator look like and what did the victims mm. look like and that's that's essentially what happens i mean if um what's so particularly strange about it is that for whatever reason identity politics seems to place so little seriousness on the world's oldest hatred yeah like uh, many yes. people have talked about that naturally but it just seems as if not only is this an a tremendous kind of abdication of responsibility to deal with a very serious threat and a horrendous sort of evil in our society it's also something which just fundamentally fails to take our own muslim citizens seriously yeah you know it creates a situation in which we're assuming that to want to challenge a small but significant problem within that community, if you like, is something that will upset them rather than be something that they would naturally want to weed out themselves, as, yeah. any, as all the polls would indicate that they would. So it not only um, on its own terms is quite grim, it also, at the, at the core of it, is not taking Muslim citizens seriously, not thinking of them as part of the national community, thinking of them something as separate to be yeah. tiptoed around other, mm. really. Um, and that's something that we really need to get around because it's not just about discussions about fence and all the rest of it. Lives are on the line in these discussions. Isn't there also the suggestion that if we talk about this, we're going to be inciting hatred against Muslim groups? Mm. Yeah. If we acknowledge that there's a problem there. Uh, Josh Harry was talking about this the other day, that after the event, what, uh, most of the tweets he was seeing were about, will there be an Islamophobic backlash? Mm -hmm. yeah. As opposed to let's focus on the four Jewish people who've been kept hostage and are in threat mm -hmm. of death. You yeah. know, So there's a priority issue. Definitely. Let's. Um, talk about American politics more broadly. Uh, Joe Biden, on the day we're recording this, it's been a year since his inauguration. Biden obviously swept to power following Trump. His big promise, the big promise of his presidency was that he was going to restore normalcy, partly put in, putting an end to the divisiveness of the Trump years, but also putting an end to the pandemic. Tom, how would you rate him on that particular promise? It's not going particularly well, is it? <laughs> um, and uh, it's interesting because I think the, it's worth casting our minds back to just how in dreamland the American commentary were around the yeah. time of that inauguration. <laughs> I mean, the quotes that were coming out, one of like PBS's national correspondents, I think, says something to the effect, you know, it's like the superheroes have come to save us. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, people on CNN talking about the lights down the side of the National Mall being like Joe Biden's arms reaching out into America. Mm. Kind of southern oh, North that. Korea for a while. <laughs> uh, and of course, he's been completely incapable of, of delivering because he's um, not only quite a doddery figure, but he's obviously quite poorly advised. This idea that he was going to solve the pandemic overnight was yeah. so ridiculous. I mean, he's presiding over, I think he's about to eclipse Trump's death toll with vaccines which yeah. is a pretty, you know, 
impressive feat. And on this question of kind of the culture wars, because one um, argument that I'm sure we all notice, even amongst kind of anti-woke liberals, if you like, was that if you hate the culture war, vote for Joe Biden. The thing about Trump is he's just like kerosene on the fire. Yeah. Mm. He makes it all worse. And they're right to an extent, not least because of the way in which he would kind of inflame this level of opposition. But if anything, he's sort of institutionalized the culture. I mean, one of the first things he did when he got into office was to um, produce that executive order, um, essentially directing the federal bureaucracy to the ends of t- tackling systemic racism. So that very mm. contested sort of identity politics term is right at the heart of, of government, uh, you know, basically racial preferences being suggested for COVID relief. And also just at any juncture, feeling the need to go along with the culture mm. war fad rather than to challenge it. The Rittenhouse trial was a good example of that, and essentially calling into question the jury result um, yeah. rather than accepting as anyone would that it was a, a quite fair conclusion for them to come to. So in just all of these different situations, the idea that he was going to be this unifying figure has been proved to be completely bollocks. Not because I think he's you know sat around reading you know, identitarian websites all day and just, you know, desperate to share his pronouns with people. But for whatever reason, the Democratic Party recognises that that's kind of its base now, is that kind of academic media blob who are really enthralled to these ideas have become more enthralled to them over the course of the Trump years and that there's almost a political cost to be paid from them from deviating from it. So I think it's that idea that he was going to return normalcy, particularly on the question of the culture war, has just been completely exploded by this point, I think. And particularly on race. I mean, it's, it's striking how inflammatory Biden has been a lot of the time, you know, he talks about, you know, various uh, Republican efforts to, you know, to change voting systems. I mean, we don't want to get into the details of that. It's a very sort of mm. wonkish question. He talks of that as like a kind of 21st century Jim Crow. Yeah. You know, when he was commemorating the the horrific kind of Tulsa massacre 100 years on, he said the racism that was alive in, you know, 1921 is still here today. Yeah. He's- I mean, it's, well, he's done that thing, hasn't he, that, that all culture warriors do, which is to make the claim that there has been no real uh, change in yeah. society because what's happened is uh, that all the the racism that was in society has just been subsumed. So it's just harder to, to detect, mm. but it's still there. Like Robin D'Angelo says that in a sense, uh, the modern day situation is worse than Jim Crow. You know, she would yeah. go that far. And, and he's bought on into all of that. I don't know if it's him or his advisors mm. or or the people around him. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but he is, it's it's... They've very much seized the are, are behaving like culture warriors. I mean, even that um, on the January the sixth, the anniversary of the mm. uh, the Capitol riots, and they were comparing it to nine eleven, yeah, and all sorts of things. Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, exactly. Yeah. And and that's so preposterous. Mm. Uh, it's it's and everyone can see that's preposterous. And one of the key features of of the identitarian co- uh, left is that they do run with narratives that are observably false, yeah, and they just repeat them often enough mm-hmm. in the hope that people will just go along with those narratives. Everyone. Knows knows it's not true, but you just sort of have to pay lip service to it. And they, they're definitely doing that. Uh, I find with him as well, I mean, he's obviously had a disastrous year. The way to measure it is his poll ratings, approval mm. ratings. And whereas Trump, you know, was always divisive, he yeah. was, you know, yeah. when he came in, he was an unpopular president. Yeah. And his approval ratings, you know, it got worse a bit, but not much. It just sort of, it was fairly stable. And uh, Biden's a plummeted, right? Yeah. So he came in as a really popular figure. Mm. And and the reason I suppose that they plummeted is we've seen him now, you know, his election strategy was to hide. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and stay in his basement. Stay in his yeah. basement. And of course the press didn't give him any hard questions mm. at all. They gave him a really easy time. It was only <laughs> Afghanistan. That's only, and that's when the, the approval ratings started to plummet because for once he was up there having to answer difficult questions yeah. and we can see how hopeless he is. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's probably too early, but it, isn't it over for him? I mean, he's so... Yeah. 
he can't run. He's not going to run again. No, he? but and, and it's interesting as well because not only he's, has he been found out, but kind of Kamala Harris has been yeah. fi- found out. Well, she as was well. found out before because mm, of course you know she she had to drop out of the primary so early because <laughs> she was so hopeless and she couldn't get black votes in particular, which is funny because she's such a really lent into that kind of um, I am the representative of yeah. the, the minority <laughs> vote and the rest of it. Whereas this old white guy did very well, but it was uh, it's it's they've both been sort of found out. I mean, Kamala Harris has had a run of really embarrassing kind of interviews or public statements where she just it's incapable of almost saying anything. Because she doesn't really believe anything I yeah. think, a lot of the time. I mean, I think they were asking her about, um, isn't it time that you got a grip on this aspect of the COVID crisis? And she went into this very strange aspect. It is always the time every day for us to be working. So it's like a malfunctioning motivational speaker or something yeah. like, you know, it's really, really quite strange. But I think it's, it's, there's something important in there. And as you say, Biden is very doddery where it's strange because all of all of this kind of really divisive politics has kind of found its way to the center of this administration, but not because of some impassioned belief in it necessarily in their own ways they're quite insubstantial figures I mean people often talk about wokeness as if it's like um, you know a new religion in some sense I feel like it's just become like the the sort of official religion in America quite explicitly you don't necessarily have to be go to church every Sunday but you just get that that's what you have to defer to you get that you have to tip your hat to the narrative you get that you have to keep the clarity happy, if you like, mm. not to stretch the metaphor too far. And what's interesting about that is I'm, I'd be interesting to see how this pans out for him electorally because of the fact we've already had the Virginia gubernatorial race, which was again sort of very polarised about kind of woke issues in education and critical race theory and all the rest of it. Also, the fact that um, Trump doing better amongst ethnic minorities last time around. And I think what, one thing that could very easily happen, and various Democratic kind of pollsters have pointed this out and made themselves quite unpopular for doing so, is that it will become increasingly clear that this fealty to wokeness is something which, you know, will win you the support of the faculty lounge, but certainly won't win you the support of working class people, but also the, you know, the multiracial ethnic, you know, the multi-ethnic working class are going to have problems with it. We're already starting to see that in certain groups. And I think that's something which is going to potentially become more and more clear, particularly as there's more kind of electoral tests, if you like. But isn't it weird? Because we've known that for a long time. Mm -hmm. Everyone's known that Hillary Clinton lost on the basis, I think, largely on the basis of her, the fact that she was you know, dividing the electorate up and yeah. into identity groups. You know, this is something that we know that the left, I think the right can can often win through identity politics if they play that sort of nationalist card. I don't mm-hmm. think the left can. They always lose when it comes to this. So why can't they learn this lesson? I find this bizarre. I don't know the answer to that. I just think it's odd. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.